All right. Hey, Soma, this is Pastor Brandon here. I have, uh, as usual, Hannah Anderson, our visiting teacher with me. Uh, Hannah, how was your weekend? It's pretty good. I feel like we finally have hit spring. And so we were busy um, just working outside and catching up on all the, you know, the mundane kind of things you have to do for family life. What is weather looking like uh, in Virginia these days? Well, we've had sun, which is great. Um, it It's funny because we'll get really warm for a couple of days and then it'll back off. So it's not consistent. We actually, I feel so embarrassed to say this, but we actually turned on an air conditioning one <laughs> night. I, I just felt like a failure, but I mean, it was only April, but it was also 80 degrees inside the house and it just was unbearable. So what is the appropriate response to open your windows? Is that, is that right, what you would right. Okay. So you suffer through April into May just to prove that you can do it okay. and that you will not succumb to all of these modern conveniences. Okay. And then about May, maybe June, you can turn on your air because that's understandable because well, i flipped on my ac without any sense of shame oh. uh, because in the city you don't leave your windows open oh uh, right. no no we would you know but but i we it did it like our upstairs especially where the kids bedrooms are got so hot and we walked upstairs and it was just like got hit in the face with uh with warm and it's it's this weird like last night i'm like literally toggling between putting the air on because it had been 70 during the day, trying to get it back down uh, to 70 upstairs, but then knowing it was going to get down to the high thirties overnight. It, it's just a weird, but there's, there's no shame, at least here about okay. turning on the Plenty AC. Plenty of but. shame, shame for everything. That's, that's, that's the way it works. No, but we do, we leave our windows open, turn on fans and occasionally leave our doors open. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I legitimately went for months without a lock on my door because we could just never remember to replace it. So, well, I, I mean, that, yeah, I, I miss days when we could do that. I was, we were watching, a, we watch crime shows at our house at night. So this is kind of our thing. We're all, uh, my, my wife, Emily is really into crime shows and she's gotten her whole family into crime shows. She's kind of, she, if she could, I think, fulfill a lifelong dream, she'd be one of those like internet sleuths, you know? Oh, um, so we get along so well. So we're I watching like, like Pen Andy there's Andy. one in Pennsylvania, like small town Pennsylvania. And the guy, I was just laughing. The guy was like, yeah, I grew up in one of those towns where literally we don't have locks on the doors and everything's just always unlocked and open. And I'm like, what is, what is that like? You know, I, I get ring door bell notifications every night. Like people rummaging through my cars, people walking up the street, lifting handles. I mean, if you even leave your door, your car door unlocked, you, you're, it's, it's over. Yeah. So, well, um, that's uh that's good well i well, it's good to be back um i hopefully everybody enjoyed last week's episode um as we kind of introduce this new uh series um this week we want to actually just dig in and, and talk about love um as we start off um the fruit of the spirit which i was careful to say sunday is not fruits of the spirit but it is fruit um we're, we're going to get this right as a church um kind of one of those little pet peeves but the first of the, the fruit um, collectively is, is love. And so one of the things that we want to do with the series is take each uh, of these different aspects of really, I think all these are just different aspects of love and the love of Christ and contrast them with kind of ways we're being formed and shaped in the world and, and look at what does it look like to be formed into a community and into individuals um, who uh, demonstrate 
publicly these transformations that are happening internally as the spirit takes over more and more influence in our lives. And, um, and so kind of thinking like a missionary, kind of thinking, uh, an understanding that we exist in a host culture, um, and that dominant cultural narrative we're being shaped, uh, through our institutions, through our relationships, um, we're being shaped and formed. And so being able to step back and look at, you know, some of the ways that we're being formed. And so, you know, we tend to think of, um, American culture as Christian, but obviously there's lots of ways in which it's, it's forming us against the way of Jesus. And there's certainly ways that we are also being formed, uh, as a kind of a residual effect, um, into the way of Jesus, but specifically this first, um, this first one, we're going to look at, at love and some of the, some of the barriers to loving well. And so we talked Sunday, just again, to remind us about, um, kind of the, the ways we're being formed and shaped into love as self-interest or enlightened self-interest. And kind of, we, we looked at the history of American culture and, and the idea of enlightened self-interest. Um, and so you could talk about self-interest, you could talk about self-righteousness. We could just talk about selfishness. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you feel Hannah, but that it, it, yeah, I, I it runs against did, the grain. Yeah. I thought you did a great job kind of excavating our culture, because I think that's one thing we don't always do well when we come to the text is a lot of times we'll give a lot of attention to the text, understanding what the scripture is teaching. We'll investigate the culture of the scripture. We'll, we'll investigate the context of Galatians and the church there and what they were dealing with within their own culture. And in my experience, it's not as common uh, for pastors and teachers to lead us back to say, well, let's kind of excavate our own culture. Like if we're going to take this principle and we're going to apply it within our own space, we have to understand our cultural context. And I thought um, it was so helpful to be able to see, hey, your, your life is not set up within this culture to direct you toward love. And it's not just your flesh. It's like, it's your entire context that is leading you in a direction away from love toward enlightened self-interest. And so seeing that laid out, you know, to me, it was really helpful because I think a lot of the struggles we have to love well can feel very like, oh, I've failed again, or this is really my failure or my personal, I'm just a selfish person, right? Which we all are, but there are actually impulses around us that are encouraging that selfishness. And to be able to see it laid out, I think, helps us get a sense of what we're up against and uh, where we need to give attention. So I thought that was great. Yeah. And the idea of enlightened self-interest, if you didn't listen to the sermon, is essentially, it comes from Alexis de Tocqueville, the, the French kind of historian philosopher who came to America and talked about one of the things that in contrast to uh, kind of the French version of democracy he, he talked about was this idea of self-interest where we give give ourselves for others for the common good, um, but it's still rooted in kind of self-interest. So I, I love you or I, I, I sacrifice a big uh, kind of American concept um, because it's in my best interest to do so. And we contrasted that with the way of Jesus, which gives itself uh, uh, because of love for God and love for others. Um, and so, you know, I think when we think about the center of our spirituality as Christians, love is, is really central um, both in the Gospels, uh, in the Old Testament, the the Torah, the Gospels, um, and then in the um, epistles and the rest of the New Testament. And I think about the, you know, kind of the, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. 
Um, and then Jesus tells that story, right, of the Good Samaritan. Um, what do you, when you think about that story of the Good Samaritan, what are some of the the things you draw out in terms of what um, love looks like for a Christian? Well, you know, initially, when when I know that story, you know, I know it from childhood, and I'm sure a lot of folks do. It's just that, oh, you're being kind to people. Um, you know, you're, whoever God leads you to, you're not passing on the other side of the road, you're looking out for them, you're helping them flourish, and that kind of very general um, approach to love. But when I was thinking about this um, example, even since listening to the sermon on Sunday, a couple of things jumped out at me that I hadn't necessarily seen before because I wasn't thinking as contextually um, to to our moment. And And one thing that really jumped out to me was the, the preface to the actual story of the Good Samaritan, where there was an expert in the law who came to Jesus asking what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? And he said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, okay, do this. But then the expert in the law, the, the scripture says he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And, and it occurred to me as I was kind of thinking through that passage again, that that impulse to self-justify is really um, rooted in self-interest. It, it is this, I'm going to pursue my own sense of righteousness and safety first before my obligation to you. And so it, it was just so striking to me thinking of this really classic text on loving your neighbor, that one of the barriers to even getting to the place where we can love our neighbor is that temptation to self-justify, to, to seek our own kind of standing and self-righteousness, even before we would seek the good of others. And that's really the way that Paul talks about it, you know, throughout his epistles and his writings, there's a negative component to um, a self-giving love, which is the contrast. The way of Jesus is this self-giving love. Um, he talks about in Philippians 2, you know, if there's any love, he starts out, uh, if there's any consolation spirit, if there's any love, um, then um, don't look out for your own interests, renounce kind of essentially your own interests, your own status, not that you don't take care of yourself or you don't uh, care for yourself, but you're not looking primarily out for your own interests, your own ambitions, your own agendas, your own status. Uh, status was a big thing uh, from a class standpoint in that time. Um, but look at the example of Christ who empties himself, takes on the form of a servant, and then positively uh, dies on a cross, uh, sacrifices, gives himself um, away uh, for the good of others. And so that is really I think the heart of it um, when we talk about self-interest is not, um, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, obviously, we're intrinsically going to look out for ourselves, but I think at least in American culture, it's almost like we're structured as a society. If you look at our politics, if you look at our um, economic systems, if you look at our educational systems, um, if you look at, you know, kind of how we're structured sociologically, our institutions it really is. Even if you look at um, some of the things that during COVID, like the CDC appealing to people um, around guidelines, it's like, isn't this what you want for your family? Isn't this what you want for yourself? As opposed to saying, no, like we actually need to put the needs of others ahead of our, ourselves. And so there's, there's like a, almost like a naked appeal to self-interest as opposed to saying, 
no, actually, we're bound together um, as image bearers and as citizens of, of this commonwealth. Um, mm -hmm. our, our mutual interests are bound up in one another. And we don't have like a moral language even to talk about that anymore. Um, and so we, we kind of have um, nothing to draw upon in terms of compelling people towards that in a positive way other than just, you know, you do you. Do, it was kind of the thing we, we talked about um, Sunday. And so what is, when, when you think about, you know, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-interest, um, you know, what are some of the unique temptations that, you know, listeners may be facing that we're facing in this moment where, you know, we live in a digital age, we live uh, in a very kind of polarized time. What are some of the, when you think about that story, even of the Good Samaritan, some of the unique temptations we face in terms of how we're being formed uh, towards maybe enlightened self-interest or you do you? Yeah, I think too, as we talk about self-interest, and how that expresses itself as the need to justify or to defend oneself, it occurs to me that some of that is emerging because we don't feel safe, right? So if our righteousness is not safe with Christ, if we are not secure in the love of God, we're going to need to defend ourselves first. And we're going to turn kind of our interests toward ourselves and it sometimes comes from a place of being overwhelmed or from, well, I just can't do this all. I can't care for everyone all. I can't, like within my own limited reservoir, love the way this seems to be calling me to love. And I think there's something very human about that, that, uh, you know, we don't want to create this sense of, like you said, like the self-interest piece of loving others as yourself is a component to that. We're not talking about the obliviousness of self or obliterating self. But I do think um, it requires being safe enough to extend yourself in love. So whether you're safe enough in the love of God for you so that you can love others well, or even you understand who you're responsible to. One of the challenges I've found within the digital age is that there are just too many problems. There are too many suffering people. There's too much brokenness that I'm exposed to in ways that perhaps I would never have known before the digital age. I would, I simply would not have known of problems that were on the other side of the world. And so I do think there's this kind of psychic numbing that happens for us and in, in our, our responses of love. And, and this was a phenomenon I first read about within COVID that if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and I did this, I was hyper aware of every death, every spike, every small change of, oh my goodness, we lost 2000 people. You know, I, I remember watching the numbers for about six to eight weeks and just being horrified by them. And here we are hundreds of thousands of deaths later. And I honestly can't bring myself to care the same way I did earlier. And there's this unique thing that happens like within the human psyche, we, we lose the ability to care because the numbers are just too large. And I think within the digital age, there is the, the real temptation that the problems that we're exposed to, the suffering that we're exposed to is just so significant that we could cope by just turning off our love or turning off our caring because within ourselves, it's just too much. 
Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I think that there's a it just it's overwhelming, you know. <laughs> and 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 you know, I think even within our community, some are more or less connected um, to that reality. But even within on a local level, you think about healthcare workers and just I know a lot of people have talked about that, just feeling like they got to this place of burnout because <laughs> every day they're seeing patients die, they're seeing patients come in. And it just feels, uh, even on a micro level, overwhelming family members, people getting sick. Um, and so I think there, there are some that, you know, the, the digital age is just the constant, like having the, the door open, you know, all mm -hmm. the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it does wear you down. And then, you know, I think for others, um, maybe there's just been the perception that, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, so there's another temptation mm -hmm. there is to, it's like, it's not really affecting me. And maybe, um, you know, the polarization, you know, the tribalism uh, and the politicization of all this stuff, like, um, I, I, I have seen others and I see even myself sometimes, like, I just, I, I don't want to care about this or I, I can't care about this or to care about this to love would be to acknowledge something that goes against the core of what I believe about myself or about the government, about reality. Um, I don't know. Talk, do you see that at all in terms of right. people's ability to empathize and really love when maybe they don't? That's what I was trying to get at Sunday. It's not that um, we can't have different opinions or different behaviors, different policies. Um, but I think the underlying ethic is what has troubled me a lot. It, it, it just comes down to, uh, do I have to care? Um, mm -hmm. Or what if I just uh, don't believe in this? I don't even believe this is a real threat. And therefore, I don't feel compelled to enter in in the same way because right. um, I don't even accept this reality, you know? Yeah. And you know, the thing that kind of jumps out to me hearing all of these challenges, whether it's being um, overwhelmed by the problems or the suffering or, or the, the lack that is out in the world, or simply shutting ourselves off to it and saying, that's you, that's not me. I'm not responsible for you. You're responsible for you. I'm responsible for me. Both of these, I think, trace back to this idea of self-sufficiency, um, because if if we kind of zone out a bit, you know, pan out a little bit, remember that we're talking about love as a fruit of the spirit, that the kind of love we're talking about cultivating in our lives is not rooted in our own capacity to do this or not do it. So insofar as we're overwhelmed by the suffering around us, that is, again, kind of trying to love out of our own resources. Or insofar as we're like, no, you're not one of mine, therefore I don't have to love you, is again, defining love based on ourselves and our own capacities. And, and it's so striking to me that what, is being presented in Galatians 5 is, no, this is a supernatural love that comes from someplace else. It comes from the spirit. It comes from the love you have received from God himself. It comes from a life that is shaped by the spirit. And if we don't have that piece in our conversations, then we're not going to get very far away from our own self-sufficiency to love well. And, and it's also striking to me how much of this, like you mentioned on Sunday, is a partnership with the spirit that we are aligning ourselves with the work of God and, and creating certain habits and patterns that will help facilitate this growth in our life, not just trying to um, force it from our own resources or our own self-sufficiency. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I think again, right now, um, the, the great temptation is to kind of really, we're also disconnected from institutions and structures. We're kind of on our own. And so we feel maybe even a sense of, I've got to figure this out, which is a fleshly response, right? A kind of, I myself get in my home or with my people and I kind of figure things out. And then I move out into the world and decide, um, you know, what I'm going to do based on this kind of rational calculus of, um, you know, what's, what's best for me and my family um, and, and what I believe about what's happening right now, as opposed to what is the spirit doing Mm-hmm. And, and how do I begin to kind of enter back in and like, you know, um, um, rehabituate myself, you know what I mean, uh, within these institutions and within these uh, relationships? And then mm-hmm. how, do I, how do I begin to rebuild some of these structures? I think I've heard a lot of people saying that, like, I just feel kind of isolated or I feel like I'm disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't have those normal structures and uh, systems in my life. And, and so you're kind of relying on, you know, just... Um, the like some kind of emotional inspiration like i'll just i'll just feel it and it will come Uh over me and i'll know what to do to love Uh because we've lost so many of the avenues by which we were able to express love Mm -hmm. or to show faithfulness to our neighbor Mm -hmm. um that being done away with it it's kind of like it's all thrown back on us which is exactly where um the problem of self-sufficiency kind of emerges to begin with Mm -hmm. is that loving our neighbor well is as much an individual act as it is a communal structure that we enter into. Um, There are habits and patterns and practices that when we can't express love, we enter into these things. And it makes me think of how even the Old Testament law itself was structured with built-in patterns that would help facilitate love. So as much as we talk about American society not facilitating love, um, what's fascinating to me when, when we hear Jesus say that the whole law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself, you know, love God and love na- your neighbor as yourself, the reverse of that means that the law had habits and patterns built into it that would get you there. Um, and, and by that, I'm not saying legalism gets you to love. I'm saying that there was a um, liturgy of life that led people toward loving practices. And one of the things I think about in particular is how the Israelites were to leave the corners of their field to be gleaned for the poor. So at harvest, they were supposed to give their first fruits to God, and then they were to leave portions of their harvest for the poor. And that structure alone would help facilitate their ability to love their neighbor well. Yeah, that's good. I think that's really good. If you, and that's where if you read Deuteronomy, you read Leviticus, um, you start to see those, those practices and those structures. It's not just love your neighbor, good luck. You know what I mean? It's, right. very, it's almost like embarrassingly detailed sometimes like there's things that were like oh that that feels a little too mm-hmm. prescriptive you know um especially in our context like economically where mm-hmm. um we're so used to and again i'm not i'm not deconstructing capitalism but we're so used oh to let's do that please <laughs> i can do that uh that we have uh some you know financial people in our church who may not like that but you know i think that um that's the air that we breathe again. And so a market economy reduces people to transactions. And, it, and it's kind of that we talk about the invisible hand of the market. There's no invisible hand when you look at Leviticus. It's very specific about how we're to love each other. And so 
talk a little bit more about some of those, those structures and habits and, mm -hmm. and what it, I don't know, what does it look like to kind of rebuild those as right. we're coming even out of COVID, we have a new opportunity to think about mm -hmm. our patterns and our habits and our institutions, because everything's kind of been really obliterated. It's like a kid's come to the, you know, using the example of Legos, like there's a Legos built on a table and a kid's come and just wiped them off the table. Mm -hmm. And so now we're in a process of rebuilding those uh, habits and those impulses and right. those routines. And what does it look like to kind of enter back in, but not just go back to the way things were beforehand? Because there's certainly a lot that needed to be reformed, you know? Well, I love that Galatians talks again in this larger imagery of cultivation of fruit that is produced from the spirit, from abiding in Christ, because one of the things about cultivation is you very quickly learn how much you didn't make it happen. So there is this kind of partnership. Yes, you cultivate the soil. Yes, you do your part. But there's so much out of your control that you very quickly learn that the idea of self-sufficiency is, it's just not real. Like there is no self-made individual. You can't take care of yourself. And, and I think once you begin to have that category open up for you, it does lead you to more loving habits and more loving patterns because these things are holistically integrated. Once you recognize that you can't take care of yourself, you're going to be open to the possibility of taking care of other people because of the own process, your own process. And what's fascinating to me is again, you know, going back to the illustration that the Israelites were to leave the corners of their field to be gleaned. Part of the work of cultivation itself taught them that they didn't bring that harvest about. So by the time they were leaving the corners of their field to be gleaned for the poor, they had already learned the lesson that God was the one that brought the harvest in the first place. And there's a brief portion in Turning of Days that I just wanted to read um, because I was meditating on this even in times of our own harvest here in Virginia and thinking about what that process teaches us about our insufficiency, our interdependence, and how that opens us up um, to the possibility of generous love. This is from a um, essay in the fall portion. In speaking of the harvest of the kingdom, Jesus reminds his disciples of the saying, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And so in God's providence, harvest is meant to be a time of interdependence and communion, simultaneously abundant and limited. Self-sufficiency was never the goal. Relying exclusively on your own work was never the end. Because as much as harvest teaches you to make peace with the unpredictable, it also teaches you to make peace with others and live in mutuality. Also, the sower and reaper can rejoice together. The mutuality and generosity in harvest lies behind the Old Testament command to not harvest the corners of fields. During the time of gathering in, the Israelites were to leave some of their crops for the needy, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. The first fruits belong to God and the last fruits belong to your neighbor. Because more than anyone, gardeners know that the harvest is unpredictable. 
Gardeners know that you can work and do your best and the elements still turn against you. More than anyone, those who work the fields know how quickly life can change, how quickly you yourself could be needy. And so more than anyone, they know that the wild abundance of harvest is to be shared. That's really good. I love this idea of um, interdependence. You know, we're, we're, we're not talking about dependence or codependence. We're also mm-hmm. not talking about independence. We're trying to live in that tension of interdependence um, mm-hmm. and seeing ourselves as a, as a body, specifically, you know, Galatians 6, he talks about do good to everyone, but especially to those in the household of faith, so into the spirit, not to the flesh. Um, but even then outside of our community, he says do good to all people. We, we have this interdependence with the larger world because of common grace and the Imago Dei um, that, that leads us to, um, we talked about love as being self-sacrifice, self-giving, and um, self-emptying, um, renouncing your own needs uh, and your own status, um, and then kind of sowing into the interest of others. As we think about that, just closing here, um, we, we talked about three things in terms of what it looks like to sow into that harvest. One is sowing into God's love in your own life, um, building daily habits of just abiding in God's love, being reminded. Because again, I think we, we, we say we believe these things, but we don't actually believe them um, because we've experienced abandonment or betrayal or breakdowns of trust and love in the past. Um, and just because of our sinful pride. Um, so we need those daily reminders that we are in God's love. God's love is the sphere of our existence. Um, it's the ecosystem within which we are we are brought to life and sustained in life. Um, and so seeing God sowing his love into us each day, then out of the overflow of that, just that easy movement of almost like breathing in and out, we then, as we are receiving that, looking around us to say, um, what are the needs of others? And what are this, again, just really emphasize like the small everyday embodied acts of love, not trying to be heroic, um, but just recognize, like I see this in myself, just in the impulse every day, um, I get annoyed when people try to make claims on me, you know, whether it's my wife and my kids or my neighbors, I am just noticing more and more uh, in myself, the older I get, the more I just get frustrated when people when I sense that there's an invitation for me to, to, to love somebody, I'm like, really this person or really right now. Um, and, and yet I see in our church, just so many of, uh, so many of you, some of hopefully those listening, um, doing that dropping meals and looking after one another in COVID. And, and it's not just all negative. There's so many positive examples of this, but when you think about the opportunities that we have right now, Hannah, and you think about kind of building new habits, new practices, um, living into interdependence beyond uh, this pandemic, and you think about just those daily, small, everyday acts of love, what what do you see um, either in your own life or what do you see those opportunities for the church in this moment? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really hear your attention to our own hearts. Um, for me, the awareness that it's possible that my love has grown cold, especially after a season of isolation, especially after a season where we have drawn ourselves back. We've had to kind of only concern ourselves with our family or our immediate space. So for me right now, I'm thinking a lot about where I need to challenge myself, where I need to take a step of faith or break a habit that has been established versus 
um, even as I'm, I'm working toward building new habits, also being aware that there's probably some bad habits that have been established. And, and this happened to me even this week where I was um, driving somewhere and every time I pass this intersection, there's a panhandler. Now, I do not want to make an ethical statement about panhandling. So hear this as simply Hannah attending to her own heart and driving past, driving past, driving past every day and justifying it every time I pass. And I recognize that even if it was for my own heart's sake, I needed to break that habit of callousness. And so um, this week when I passed, I had something to offer and to give. And it, it was, yes, I'm being generous for this person, but it was also an attention to the fact that I've grown too comfortable passing this person. I've grown too comfortable with my own coldness. And so that was a habit that I wanted to break and to intentionally break and find a way to break. Now, I don't know what that means for a long-term process, but I knew that there was a habit that had been established that wasn't healthy. So I'm also giving attention to um, the places that I've become comfortable or maybe a little apathetic or jaded. Um, I also think as we build healthy practices moving forward, this is something that we're not doing alone. We're doing with our families. We're doing with our children. We're, we're seeking to cultivate in them generous love and bringing them into our own process. So it's not just me alone doing this. And if you're not, if you don't have children, maybe it's you and roommates, or maybe it's you and friends that are cooperatively coming together to build off of each other and saying, we together are going to show love in this way. Because I think even that process reinforces the mutuality and interdependence that we're talking about. That love is not to be a solitary act. It's to be something that we do together, helping each other, spurring each other on to love and good works. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to close. Remembering that this is there is a sense of failure built into this. Um, and that's why we need the cross. That's why this idea of cruciform love, I think we have to remember that, that our, our failures and our foibles in this area are designed to lead us to Jesus, not to, to a place of shame or guilt, because it, it, we're never going to get this right. Uh, but, but Jesus has gotten this right. But, but we also need the community to help us discern those opportunities to even see our own uh, kind of um, self-sufficiency or self-interest. And that's why um, Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar who writes a lot about the, the spirit um, in his book, God's Empowering Presence, he says this, all the language here is plural. You know, mm -hmm. So it's meant to be seen as a community, not just individuals, but it's a community uh, bearing this fruit together, bearing this harvest together. And so, um, yeah, I just want to encourage you if you're listening today to, to pay attention to the invitations from the spirit. You know, where is God? inviting you to love? What is God inviting you to see? And uh, what, it, what might it look like for you to begin to or continue to act on that uh, and to be obedient to the Spirit's invitations and to build um, some basic practices that maybe move you towards um, active love um, and not just thinking about it, not just feeling it, but actually beginning to act on and build a life that's oriented around the love of God um, for yourself and for other people. So Hannah, thanks for again, joining uh, me for this conversation. We look forward to uh, coming back next week. We'll be talking about joy uh, in a culture of despair. So thanks for being here with me. Mm -hmm.